If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we've been walking through, of course, the Lord's Prayer. We're on this last part of the Lord's Prayer, where, where we are asking God not to bring us into times of stretching, but instead to deliver us from evil. We've looked at what evil is. Evil is the opposite of good. It is not doing what God says to do. Uh, and we looked at why there is a battle with evil even to begin with. We saw that we live in an evil world uh, with evil people who don't like to have their evil pointed out to them and who will then call you evil for pointing out their evil. And then we looked at how we fight evil, like the Christians battle against evil, that we're to stay away from it, we're to purge it, we're to hate it, we're to begin that battle against evil in ourselves first, we're to run toward the good, we're not to fear it, and we're to pray, pray, pray. But as we start looking at last week, this prayer in the Lord's Prayer isn't about God helping us in our fight against evil or helping us fight evil the right way, like we looked at several weeks ago. It's not about us on the attack against evil. This is a prayer for deliverance. This is, it's what we need when evil comes against us. So when we looked previously at the, the Christian's battle against evil, now we're looking at evil's battle against the Christian. How does evil attack us to the point that we say, Lord, deliver us. We're not on the attack. We're saying, Lord, deliver us from, from evil. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. We'll read this Lord's prayer again, uh, just to remind ourselves of, of what we're digging deeper into. We're not just, you know, wanting to, to talk about, you know, evil. Uh, we're doing it because we want to understand, you know, in this prayer we've talked about, it's such a short prayer. You can say this perfect model prayer in less than seven seconds. And we could spend our entire lives digging deeper into this prayer, what it means, how God has done it, is doing it, will do these things in our lives. Uh, and week by week, we're getting closer to actually doing that. So uh, beginning in verse nine, it, it says this, Jesus is, is telling them, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, our prayer today, God, is, is like Zachary said, that, Father, we would be bringing worship to you that is making much of our Lord, is making much of you, and that we know comes only through his work on our behalf. And, Father, as we come to worship you, we recognize, Father, we come confessionally. We come saying that, that every moment of our life should be filled with worship like this. But this time where you bring your people together, Father, we pray that you would especially grow us as a body. As you have grown us all individually at home, I pray that you would grow us here together in the same thing, one body united in course and purpose for your glory and for our good. Teach us what it means that you deliver us from evil, Father. Help us to understand it better so that we might pray it more and might see you in that work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we are, we're on this uh, last section here. You could tie it with, you could tie the last two together if you, if you wanted to, that'd be fine. Uh, but they're certainly, they're certainly connected, but we're looking at this idea of delivering us from evil. And so that's what we started last week, looking at evil's battle against the Christian. But in order to understand the battle, we have to know who we're battling. We've got to know who the battle is against. What is the evil that we're talking about here when God says deliver us from evil. And so we saw that the word here uh, at the end of this prayer could be translated as the evil. That if you're, if you're reading it in the Greek the way it, it was written, the way Jesus said it, it's going to be delivered from, you know, the evil. And so then it becomes a question of what is the evil that he's delivering us from? And, and we saw how this word is used in the Bible to talk about evil in general. Uh, it's used to talk about calamitous events that come our way. It's used to talk about the evil as in the evil people of this world. And lastly, it's used to talk about the evil one, uh, Satan. 
All of them are viable options. All of those are evils that do and will attack the Christian at at various points. So all of those are are things we need to know about and we need to know how they will attack us, what stretchings they will bring to us, how we're delivered from them uh, so that we might pray. This is again why this isn't just about, you know, one particular one of these evils that we're looking at. We're going to dig through all of those and see how all of those bring battles against the Christian and, and all all the ways that God does deliver his people from those so that we can pray confidently, deliver us from evil. But each of these evils does not attack the Christian the same. And so that since the Bible describes each of them attacking the Christian in different ways, we don't want to have this uh, sort, sort of one answer that covers all things. We want to recognize that each of these is going to bring a specific attack toward us so that we can be ready uh, for any attack that might come our way and know how the Lord delivers us from this specific thing and how he promises that he will so that when we pray, uh, we know how the Lord's going to answer. And last week, we started with the evil one. We started with the end of that list. We started with the, the, the chief of, of evil, the, the prince of principalities. We started with Satan or, or the devil. And we looked at his, his names to get, so if we were looking at like, how does he attack? We look at his chief name, Satan or the devil, that those give us insight into the way that he attacks believers. He is our accuser. He is our adversary. He's the one who stands in our way, uh, the one who slanders us. So of all the names that could be attached, I mean, we just saw Beelzebul, of all the names that could be attached to the devil, to the evil one, those names specifically are names tied to how he attacks us, to what he is doing against the Christian. And so we looked at some examples from Scripture of, of how the, that Satan is working as that adversary and, and how that changes in light of Christ and cause him to want to make war uh, with the church. And so that's what we saw who Satan was. And then we started to look at, well, okay, well, how does he make war against the church? What is Satan doing if he hates the, if he hates the bride of Christ, if he hates the child? Like, how does he pursue uh, the, the church? And we started with Paul in Ephesians. Because Paul in Ephesians 6 gives us a really great sort of descriptive verse there uh, where, where Paul says that Satan, uh, the devil, if you go back in, in verse 13, where the devil hurls fiery darts at the believer. And so, so we, we saw who Satan is. He's our adversary. He's going to attack us. How is he going to attack us? What are the weapons that he uses? And, and last week we saw that he uses fire, these fiery darts that he, he attacks from a distance, right? These are literally the, the word there for darts or arrows are just thrown things, which fits with his name. Remember, diabolos, devil means the thrower, the slant, he throws words out. We here see that he's throwing these arrows, these darts, these spears, however you want to say it. So he attacks from a distance. Sometimes we don't expect it from places we don't expect it. He attacks with multiple arrows. It's not, he's throwing fiery dart, but fiery darts, uh, and uh, that these are on fire, ready to consume us and those closest to us. But God not only tells us that Satan throws darts, not only does he tell us that Satan throws these arrows, God also explains to us and gives us examples of the types of arrows that he throws toward the believer, the types of things that he likes to use. So what are the darts that Satan most often fires? Now, these are not the darts that he's, these are the exclusive choices that he has in his quiver uh, to launch at believers. But these are the things that the Bible describes as the darts that Satan likes to use against the believers. What sort of weapons is he liking to, to pull out? What, what weapon does he use uh, in, these, in these fiery darts? And so, so that's what we're going to look at this week. And next week, our scripture tells us he likes to attack us with these darts. But scripture also is going to tell us what sort of things Satan uses. What are the things that he is prone to use in making war with the believer? Uh, And so this week, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're all the way back to the book of Genesis. If we start at the beginning, we see one of the first darts that Satan hurled at God's people. And it was the dart of doubt. That Satan has this entire arsenal of arrows at his disposal. 
but one of his favorites to use against the believer is doubt. So today we're going to look at the temptation uh, to doubt God, that Satan wants the believer to doubt God. And this is a big one. It was, it was my desire, uh, I guess, two weeks ago. Uh, this was one of the many arrows that we were going to look at. But as what happens is you begin to dig in scripture and you begin to see this and you begin to talk, you realize that man, doubt is a pretty big arrow. Uh, doubt is one that many believers struggle with, continue to struggle with. And so we want to see that we want to, we want to see this arrow that Satan uses and, and spend some time looking at how do we battle back against doubt? Because, I mean, doubt is the seed behind a lot of temptations for the believer's life. Behind a lot of times of stretching, if you trace it back, you can trace it to an arrow of doubt that has sunk itself into the armor of the people of God. Now, it might work its way out in all sorts of other areas. Lack of self-control. It might work its way out in, you, you, you know, you can't, your, your tongue. Uh, it can be all sorts of things. But when you trace that back, you find that it all began with doubt. It all began with doubting. Uh, it is it is the root of many failings for the Christian, both internally uh, and externally. It is. Remember, we read last week that that uh, from Ephesians six and then from James that part of the problem with fiery arrows is fire is meant to spread uh, and consume you and consume those close to you. It is meant to consume. It sets on fire your whole world. Well, doubt is one of those arrows that is meant to consume your whole Christian life. One of those arrows that is meant to seed itself in you till it, till your, your, the field becomes, uh, weeds. Uh, that's what it wants to do. It wants to bring that level of doubt. It is not just satisfied with you doubting in one area. It wants you to doubt in every area. It is one of Satan's favorite weapons to wield against the believer and it has been since the beginning in fact if we remember what satan's name means uh, especially devil uh, he is the accuser he is the slanderer but he doesn't just slander us we saw last week how he slanders us before the throne of god and tries to get god to kill us Uh, he doesn't just slander us satan slanders god And that's what's going to lead to doubt. He's going to slander who God is to try and get us to doubt God. So turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Remember, here we've got the Garden of Eden here. We've got the fall in Genesis 3. What temptation did Satan bring to Eve and through her to Adam? Look at what it says in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Satan begins begins by saying, Really by saying what God did not say. So saying what God did not say in a way that makes it look worse than what God did say, right? He begins by saying, is it true that God won't let you eat anything? Is it true? You know, it's like the teenager who hears another teenager has a certain set of rules in their house. I can't believe your parents won't let you do. They won't let you watch that movie. Uh, How oppressive, Uh, you know, and that's the way it begins. He begins by treating Eve as a teenager. I don't know if she was at this point, Uh, but he's treating Eve as a teenager. Say, look, surely, surely. Is it true that he won't let you eat 
any tree in the garden? God doesn't, you know that idea? God doesn't, God doesn't let you do anything fun, does he? He won't let you eat any tree? And he continues, he continues, not just with that, but by raising these doubts about, not just what God, but about the, about the goodness of God. I mean, the only reason he won't let you eat, you know why he won't let you eat, right? It's not that he cares about you. The reason he won't let you eat is because when you eat it, you're going to be like him and he doesn't want you like him. That's why he won't let you eat. So he starts out, he won't let you eat anything, will he? No, he let us eat. Oh, but you know why he won't let you eat that tree? Wait, didn't you just say he won't let us eat any tree, but now you know why he won't let us eat that tree? What is it all doing? It's all trying to see doubt. One of the primary darts that Satan hurls at the believer is to try and cause us to doubt God, which makes sense after what we read last week in Ephesians 6. Because what shield does Paul say that we possess against the darts? What shield? The shield of faith. The shield of faith. So he's, he's, not, he's not, Paul's not talking there about faith in ourselves. It's not, hey, pick up your self-esteem and, you know, this is faith in God. Why would faith in God be absolutely essential? Because Satan's earliest spear, his first arrow, was to cause us to doubt God, to lose faith. And one of Satan's chief tools continues to be to cause us to have doubts about God. What sort of doubts are are we talking about? Well, for us, it's not, you know, eat the tree. But the lines he gives haven't changed all that much. The doubting that he gives. And realize, this is why it's so, again, if our shield is a shield of faith, if he can get us to doubt God, he takes away our shield. He takes away our shield. That's, I mean, Satan is not a fool. Man, he is a fool. But he's the craftiest of all fools. (laughs) So what common doubts? Today we're going to look at some common doubts that we see in Scripture about God about who he is, about how he feels about us, that we see believers struggle with. And the reason we're going to look at these is you're going to see the doubts that people have struggled with before the time of Christ are no different than the doubts you struggle with today. They're no different. They're no different. The the darts are all the same. It's important for us to know this for a couple of reasons. Well, I mean, one, that's exactly what, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. None of the doubts that you face are a doubt that no one else has faced. In fact, none of the doubts you face, you, you probably can't find four or five other scriptures about other people of faith facing those same doubts. Which is good because if you doubt sometimes, you'll feel like you're the worst. If you're struggling with doubt, if Satan is pressing that point of doubt against your armor, pushing against your shield, and you feel the weight of that, you might feel like you're the worst for ever having doubt to begin with. But know that the evil one is the one who is attacking with doubt because it is a deadly weapon. He's always attacked God's people from the very beginning with this doubt. So the first example I could give is that God doesn't want the best for you. And I, and I pull this from that Genesis 3 passage, that God doesn't really want the best from you. And this is the one we saw there. It really hasn't changed all that much. Satan was telling them that the best thing for them would to be, uh, to be like God and to know good and evil. And God doesn't want that for them. God's trying to keep the best away from them. He wants to keep all the good stuff for himself. The the idea is that his rules are there to limit us. That God's law is there to restrict us from having a good time. We're going to talk a little bit about this more uh, next week, if we get to it, when we talk about the deception that that Satan uses, deception and lies. Satan will try and convince us that God's rules, his laws are only there to hinder us in our life. So when you're reading the Bible and you see things it tells you not to do, or you're in a sermon and it's telling you the type of husband you need to be or the type of child you need to be, you're just like, oh, one more thing I got to do. You know, why, you know, the idea that, you know, on earth we just live this horrible life and then, and then we'll get to get to heaven and finally, you know, live joyously or whatever. That's not true. The, the Christian life is, is the best life 
But Satan tries to convince us that God's law, his word is just there to restrict us, to ruin our life, to take away all our fun. You see the outside world talk about it this way. When you talk about, you know, the type of home you're trying to live, the type of wife you're trying to be, the type of husband or father you're trying to be, they're like, Ugh, you got to follow all that Bible stuff? Yee. And the truth is, if you, I mean, you've seen their Facebook posts. They live the worst lives. They're not happy. Uh, they're, they're living horrible lives. Uh, and it's like, you might just try this. Like, this would be good even if you just tried, even if you didn't believe in Christ. Like, this would be better for your life than that. Uh, the, 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 the law is not there to hinder us in any way. The, the, the word of God is not a hindrance to life. It is, the, it is the source of life. But if Satan can convince us that, that God doesn't want our best, that the words of God that we're reading, so we're reading and we get that doubt, would it really be good for me if I did that? I mean, what's going to happen if I obey that? What's my life going to look like? If I become a husband like this, I've got to cut out this and I've got to start doing this and I've got to start doing that. And, and what if she responds this way? Ugh. Why is God putting these things on my life? That, that sort of doubt is the same doubt that was sown in Genesis 3. The same doubt. Did God, is God really not letting you eat any of that? Is God not letting you eat any of that? What a horrible God. He won't let you eat. He makes all these great fruit trees. And he won't let you have any of them. No, he does. He lets us eat, but we can't eat that. Oh, you know, I won't let you eat that one. God doesn't want the best for us. That's what Satan tries to get us to doubt. See, when you and I doubt the word of God and, and that the obedience to it is the best thing we could do, that the rules of God are there to give us life rather than take our life, that's the doubt that we're having. Where we say, I'm not sure that obedience is the best. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that God's rules are the best for me. Satan wants us to think that, Satan, he wants us to think that God's a bad father. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to think that God is a bad father who just puts rules in place to, to sort of squash the fun of his children. Who just wants to put rules in place so he doesn't have to deal with us. That these, these things, that it would be better for us, it'd be better for us if I could just eat. And it looks good, and I bet it'll be good for me, no matter what God says. That's the doubt that he sows. Which is, in, in the end, actually a doubting of the goodness of God. So one of the things Satan wants you to do is he wants you to think that God doesn't want the best for you. And if you don't think God wants the best for you, then anything you read from God, if you're going to have that doubt, you're not going to want to obey it. It's going to ruin your vision of God. That doubt is going to keep you from the things that are going to, it's going to open you up to every other dart. It's going to open you up to every other tag. It, it's ruining the shield of faith. Well, how about this doubt that, that we hear often, we see in scripture, that God doesn't really care. That God doesn't care about what you're going through. This is a doubt we face as believers. Sometimes when we're going through stretchings, we're going through times that are tough, we'll wonder if God knows. And if he knows, if he really cares. Does he just know because he's omniscient? Or does he care because he really loves us? Satan will lie to us and tell us that God doesn't care about what we're going through. You'll be struggling, you'll be, you'll be trying hard, you'll be, you'll be working hard, you'll be sweating day after day at work or at home, you'll be slaving away to try and glorify him, and Satan will convince you that God doesn't care, that he doesn't see, that you're offering up this hard worship of obedience and his eyes are elsewhere. This is the worry that begins Psalm 22. Remember the psalm that, that Jesus reminds us of on the cross. That unfortunately, Jesus expects us not to be as lazy as we often are. He gives us verse 1 of Psalm 22 and assumes we're going to read the rest of it. Uh, and not just stop with verse 1. And this is a song we should remember when we take up our own crosses as well. Because how does Psalm 22 start? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how does it continue? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. 
Now, there are moments when we feel forgotten by God, when we feel even forsaken by him, where it feels as if he has turned his eyes away from us, even away from our labors for him. Satan will tell us to doubt that God really cares about us in those moments. He will tell us that God has forsaken us. He will tell us that God is not there to help us. He will try to get us to despair and hopefully to give up. Now, we know we've read the rest of Psalm 22. We've looked at it several times as a church. We know how that psalm ends. We know that the psalm ends with saying, God, you have not forsaken me. You have not forgotten me. That even if I were to die, I would know your faithfulness. I would lift up praise from my dead lips to you because I would have known you would have been faithful even in my death. But Satan wants us to end with verse 1. He wants us to think that God has forsaken us. He wants to think that God isn't watching, that he is far from us, that he doesn't care for our groanings, that we can cry and cry and God not answer as if he is one of the prophets of Baal. And by night, and we find no rest. And if you think about it for our lives, we have, we all have kids, got a bunch of kids all around here. Common temptation, I hear common doubt, I hear as parents that we face. We're working hard to teach, like even today, we've got parents, one of our pastors just left with a child, uh, his own child, because what are we doing? We're working hard, you guys are like, our pastors left, uh, we're working hard as parents to teach our kids how to worship on Sunday, and they're loud, and they distract you, and you're afraid they're distracting others. But what do we know? That quiet isn't worship. Obedience is worship. That training these image bearers to worship the Lord God, that is worship. But then the question becomes, but does God see it? Does he see see you carry them out? Does he see you try and pacify them and yet not coddle them at the same time? Does he see the the sweat on your lip as you sing the hymns? Does he see you try and hold in the frustration as you have to walk out one more time? And the whole time you're walking out, you're going, I don't know if I've heard anything. Does he care? Satan will try and tell you that God doesn't care. That God's too busy being caught up in his own hymns by the people who are actually being able to sing. That he's focusing on teaching others that you've quench the spirit through your babbling baby and now he's moved on to others those are all lies and they're not just lies they're lies about who God is and how he works they're lies about what you're doing they'll tell you that you're missing out on worship when the truth is that parenting is your worship But Satan will lie to you and tell you that God has forgotten you. Satan will lie to you and cause you to doubt that God even cares about what you're doing. The truth is God cares immensely for the believer. But Satan wants you to think that God does not care. That he has forsaken you. Another doubt that Satan will bring our way isn't that God uh, doesn't care. But that God can't be trusted. That God can't be trusted. The, the, the way Satan uses this is convince us that God sometimes uh, always has a, a, a bad situation ready to throw on you at any moment. That when things are going too good, it's that God is setting you up for something, right? And so rather than rejoicing in your blessing, you're always waiting for some sort of reality check. Or, so that's one, one side of that. You're going, things are really great. God is blessing you. And the whole time you're going like this, you know, kind of look at like, thank you. But you think, no, I can't, I can't actually be happy. Uh, if I am, God's, God's about to make my dog run into the road or something. Like something bad is going to have to happen. He's going to, because he can't just bring blessing to me. He's got some other bad situation. He's just setting me up. 
or the other side, which is I'm going through such a time of stretching over and over these bad moment after bad moment after bad moment, these, these stretching after stretching after stretching, that, that I can begin to wonder, is this sort of my life now? Was all of this other, you know, love of God that he gave me, was all of that fake? And he was setting me up for this from here on out until I die. Now, if you don't think this is a problem that can sneak up on you, you need to think of the prophet Elijah. Because if you remember the prophet Elijah, we'll, we'll get to 1 Kings 19 in just a second. But if you remember 1 Kings 18, we all know 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18 is great. That's the battle on Mount Carmel, right? Uh, and at that point, everything with Elijah is, is, is wonderful. He's just won this battle against the prophets of Baal. That's 1 Kings 18. But in 1 Kings 19, the very next chapter, what does Elijah do? He runs away. He runs away. And he doesn't just run away. He runs as far away as humanly possible. He's a prophet. Remember, he's a prophet in Israel. He, doesn't just, he, he runs all the way to Beersheba, which... Boundary kids know from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, he knows Beersheba is as far south as you can. He leaves Israel, goes down to the furthest point in Judah, and then from there goes out into the wilderness. He runs as far away as you could possibly run. After this great victory. And look at what he says, 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19 verse 4. It says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he leaves his servant. He goes all the way down to Beersheba, all the way down to the border of it, like Jezebel is way up there, right? That's where he's running from, Jezebel. He's running all the way down here. He gets to the tip of, uh, of Judah and still goes, I'm going to go into the wilderness. Leaves the servant, goes into the wilderness. This is what he says. He came out, sat under a broom tree. Look, if you're going to despair about things, never sit under a tree. It just never works out in scripture to go and sit under a tree and complain. Uh, never works out well. Uh, so, so don't do that. He sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. What does he say? It's enough now, oh Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. Right? All the other prophets had died. The only I am left. Remember he keeps saying that, only I am left. I, only I am left. Even though he knows that there are a hundred prophets hidden in a cave. Like he's just talked about that. He knows that, but he still likes to be like, only I, only I am left, Lord. And then he runs and says, just kill me. Just kill me, God. If this is my life, if I'm going to die, just like all my other fathers before me, just go ahead and kill me. Which is not unusual. I mean, it's funny because God's going to tell him, all right, go to Damascus. Which if you know your Bible geography is funny because that's as far north as you can get. It's like out of Judah or out of Israel going north. So, so Elijah runs as far south as he can get. And God says, all right, go to Damascus. And it's like, oh, it's all the way back up there. He's like, yeah, you shouldn't have run. Uh, but anyway, but, so this doubt, of God, it's not unusual. This, this doubt that Elijah had, you know, I've said it. Moses did it. Moses did the exact same thing. Let me die. Just let me die. Just let me die. If these are the people you're going to just let me die, God. This is the life you've given me. Just let me die. Jonah, same thing. He, tree, also a tree. There's another bad tree situation. Just let me die. Just let me die. If this is what you've got for me, God, if this is who you are, just let me die. Now, what's the lie behind all of that? That all of this, this situation that I'm going through is really revealing who God is. Which is funny that for Elijah, Mount Carmel wouldn't reveal who God is. Like, you would think after Mount Carmel and killing 450 prophets of Baal and having Israel kill 450, like Israel's behind it, right, at this point. He'd just march into Jezebel and say, look, I got a whole crowd of people outside that are ready to do something about this. And instead he runs, instead he doubts. And for him, that is more of who God is than, than, than 1 Kings 18. And that's, what, that's what's so crazy for us. There were Moses. You lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And you get on the, you're on this journey and you say, if this is who you're going to be, God, just kill me. If this is who you are, that doubt creeps in, not just to the Israelites, which is whom he was complaining about. It's crept into him as well. Or Jonah, you just got swallowed by a fish and God didn't have you die when you should have died. He had you spit back up, and now you're complaining and saying, now let me die. 
All of these things, all of it, they're all silly. They're all silly to doubt. When people say things like, you know, this is, you know, oh, you know, don't, don't say you don't want this or God's going to give it to you. Or, you know, if you say you don't want to be a missionary, God's going to, that's what God's going to make you or whatever, anything like that. It's really just, if you, if you ever say that, you know, uh, or, or don't ask for patience because God will give it to you. No. What's the idea? The idea is that, the idea behind that is that the worst thing God could do would be to give you patience. No, you should ask for patience because patience is a good thing. And it is a good thing for God to give it to you. But you can see how little phrases like that repaint a picture of who God is. If you ask for patience, God's going to be up there as if God has some sort of long handlebar mustache uh, and is twiddling his fingers waiting for you to ask for patience. Muhahaha. Now I get to bring them patience. That, but that's the idea. And that is, that's not just a, a bad idea about God. That's a doubt about who he is. That's a doubt about who he really is. But he's not someone to be trusted. He's not someone who has the best for you. Satan loves to grow that anxiety in our hearts. Because anxiety kills faith. So he wants us to doubt. And Satan... Satan doesn't want us to doubt that God is. He wants us to doubt who God is. Question God and anxiety will grow like a weed. And you will find your shield of faith wrapped in the weeds of anxiety. What about other doubts? One, God doesn't love you. Satan will try and convince us that God is some sort of detached mover in the sky. That whatever comes your way is just accidental, or if it is intentional, you can't be sure what the intentions are. This is what, this is what James warns about in James chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, we question the love of God when we think that he's trying to get us to do evil. That God doesn't just want to stretch us. That he wants to break us. That's a questioning of God's love. If you feel like God is the one who's brought this temptation so that you might fail, that's the doubt, the love of God. Does this in other ways as well? We see this doubt in, in our prayer life. When Jesus has to tell us, hey, you, you being wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, and yet you think I won't give good gifts to you? We see that over and over. So we question the love of God when we think he's trying to do this evil to us. Of course, we've seen the, the doubts that are sown in, in prayer. That Satan wants us to have doubting prayers. And prayer is a, is a powerful tool for the Christian. And so it is a field that Satan wants to sow doubt in. This is why when talking about doubt, God talks about doubt specifically in the context of prayer in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, you go a couple verses forward back into verse 5. What does he say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. The word for doubting there is judging through, through judging. That means you're going, well, really, I think on the other side of this, that's the idea behind doubt. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the, a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does Satan realize if he can get us to doubt? We looked at this when we talked about prayer. Doubt, doubt is one of the most effective tools against prayer. I would say it's the most effective tool against prayer, biblically. Because we saw the Bible talk about that doubt will keep you from praying. Doubt will keep you from praying. If you remember, we, it's probably several months ago. That one of, the, one, of the way, one of the things that keeps us from praying is doubt. But doubt is also one of the things that the Bible mentions hinders our actual prayers when we give them, like we just saw here. You've got someone praying, so doubt will keep you from praying. But even when you do pray, if that doubt is still seated there, it will make your prayers uh, incomplete, ineffective. So doubt is very dangerous against one of, one, of, one of the church's most powerful tools. 
So look at what Satan can do. We saw in Ephesians 6, what are we supposed to do? We take up the shield of faith. We know that doubt causes us to, to, doubt attacks our faith. It causes us to doubt God. But at the end of all that armor of God, what does he tell us to do? Praying at all times. So what does doubt, doubt will stop our shield of faith and doubt will stop us from praying. Doubt takes out multiple fronts in the battle against evil. It'll make you put down your shield, opening you up to all darts, and it will shut your mouth so that you do not pray. That's how, that's how deadly doubt is. And there, there are other, uh, other doubts as, as well. God isn't there. God isn't in control. God has failed you. God has forgotten you. We'll talk about deception again. Uh, but the, the deception creeps into those, those doubts as well. These doubts are dangerous. That's the next thing I want to see. These doubts are dangerous. Because what happens is we'll lie to ourselves. We'll pretend pretend sometimes that doubting is pious. That I'm really just being humble. Because I'm like, it's just little old me. God doesn't... I, I'm, just, I'm just so worried, you know, because I'm nobody and he's God. But the Bible doesn't say that doubting is pious or humble. Doubt, the Bible actually says that doubting is very proud. Uh, that, that that sort of anxiety is actually built from a, from a pride. And, but doubting isn't really about you. Doubting is about him and what you think about God. Doubting is really about how you view your father. And so we've got to beware of doubt. You know, we might know, because the problem is we know it's a common temptation, but I don't want us to think just because it's a common temptation that it should be a commonly accepted temptation. I don't want us to go, well, everybody doubts. I don't want us to go, well, everybody doubts, so I'm just going to doubt. That's not what we're supposed to get out of this. This is not what the world wants to do with sin. Well, everybody, you know, and so I can, whatever it is. I don't want you to think, oh, everybody has, oh, so, oh, oh, so everybody deals with doubt. So we'll just all be open and honest with each other about it. You doubting? Yeah, me too. <laughs> High five. Uh, yeah, really struggling with these doubts together. No, you need to be like, hey, I'm struggling with doubt. You're struggling with doubt? Me too. You want me to help you kill your doubt? You help me kill my doubt? Yep. That's what we need to do. Not be like, you're a doubter? I'm a doubter. What's your sign? You know, uh, what are you on the Enneagram? I don't care. Like, just kill doubt. Like, that's what we need to do with each other. That's what we should be doing. Instead of commonly accepting, well, a lot of people doubt. Yeah, that's how effective Satan has been in his attacks against the church. To have one of the most insidious weapons against the church be buried in all of us and us all go, hey, look, same arrow. That's not what we're supposed to do. Doubt is dangerous. And the Bible wants us to know that doubt is dangerous and it must be killed. What does James tell us? James chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Let us get a mask in faith with no doubt. We just looked at this. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. If you can read that and go, I'll still keep my doubt. That's you. That person will not receive anything from the Lord. Doubt might be a common temptation, but it must not be a temptation that we keep in our lives. It might be a weed that we all deal with, but it must be a weed that we all pluck. It might be an arrow that comes all of our ways, but if that arrow has sunk into you, you better pull it out because it is poison tipped. How about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Doubt seeks to cause you to question those very things. It it goes against your faith. It attacks your faith and it makes you think that God doesn't reward those who seek him. That he's not to be trusted. That he doesn't care. Doubt cripples the, the power of God's people. Matthew 21, 21 and 22. This is when he withered the fig tree. Another reason. Don't sit under those trees. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and, and do not doubt, you will not only uh, do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. If he can get us to doubt, if Satan can get us to doubt, 
Not only does he take away our defensive weapons, not only does he take away the things that allow us to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one, he also takes away our power and the power of the kingdom to attack the gates of the evil one. To throw the mountains into the sea. If he can get us to doubt, he can ruin a lot. And he is no fool when it comes to that. So what do you do? What do you do if you've been doubting? What do you do if if doubts have been flung your way or they're flying your way? What is the answer to our doubts? What do we do when that we see the arrow coming and we see doubt on its way and we, we don't want it to hit us? Or what do we do if doubts already sunk into us? What do we do then? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that it set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we see here? I think we see three things that can help us in the fight against faith. First thing is, remember them. What does it say? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look around you. Look at the other people who are battling, who are, who are, who are witnesses to the faith and the, the faithfulness of God. You, 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 you're not sure who to look around you. Read, read and read and read. You can just go back to Hebrews 11 and just start picking out the people in Hebrews 11 and going back and reading about their lives. But these people are with you. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to the faithfulness of God. You, there's, you can't deny God's faithfulness in your, your own life when you're surrounded by witness after witness after witness, a cloud of witnesses showing the faithfulness of God. So remember, 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 doubt coming your way, remember. That's been true. That's been true since the beginning. This is why you teach this to your children and your children's children, because they need to remember when doubt comes their way, because they weren't a part of this story. They weren't there. They didn't see the sea. Remember. The next thing we do is we cast it away, cast it away. As he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. And let us run, run with endurance. So we, we remember and then we cast it away. We can't let doubt hang on. We can't make excuses for it. We can't say, well, I'm doubting because this, this is so hard or that or the other. There's no excuse for doubt. Don't let it make you think that doubt makes sense. Because that's the crazy thing about doubt is that doubt is crazy. Because not only have we read about the faithfulness of God, we've seen it. We have seen innumerable examples of the faithfulness of God, not just in the text of God's word, but in our own lives. It would be foolish of us to doubt. It would be foolish of you to doubt the faithfulness of God if all you had was the Bible. It would be foolish of you to have the word of God and ever doubt God as he says he is in his word. But you've got more than that. You, by God's grace, have more than that. You're not just reading about the faithfulness of God. You've seen it. So cast aside that thing that's trying to trip you up. Cast aside that snare. Throw that weight away and run. Run with endurance. Because there are going to be more weights that are going to try to come your way. He, remember, he doesn't just fire arrows. He fires arrows. So you're going to throw off doubt. And you can't just get rid of doubt and go, woo. And then just start the walking. You better run. Because more arrows are going to come. So you remember. You cast it away. And the last thing you do is you, or the next last thing, is you look to Christ. Look to Christ. What does he say? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If your faith was about you, your faith would fail. But your faith didn't come from you. He is the founder of your faith. He is the perfecter of it. So look to him, look to Christ. You see doubt coming, what do you do? You don't stare at the arrow, you don't see it, you stare at the thing coming your way. You don't look at the doubt as it's pressed in amongst your armor and all the things that it wants you to doubt about God. You lift your eyes off that arrow as hard as it would be. This is why we have to train ourselves mental reps to, to 
fix your eyes on Christ because when things start coming our way and arrows start coming our way, you know what we want to stare at? We want to stare at the arrow. We want to stare at the dart. And when it hits us, we want to look at it. And we want to see all that it's doing. And we will watch it set on fire us and our tongues and our lives and our friends. And we're just watching and watching and watching. We have to train ourselves to fix our eyes on Christ. And you can imagine, if you take the metaphor for what it is, you can imagine how hard it would be to have an arrow in you and to not look at that arrow. But imagine Christ saying, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Because our temptation is to fix our eyes there. We have to know to fix our eyes on Christ. To set our eyes like flint toward him. Knowing that he is the answer to our problem. Whether it's coming our way or already there. Look to Christ. He is the source and sustenance of your faith. Look to him. So remember, remember them, remember you're not alone, remember you're not alone now, you've never been alone, God has been faithful to his people ever since the beginning, cast aside that weight, don't let it cling to you, rip it out, throw it away, fix your eyes on Christ, look to Christ, and then the last thing you do, you pray, you pray, you pray, deliver us from evil, deliver us from doubt. But remember, that's why you've got to cast it away because doubt will keep you from praying that and doubt will keep you from believing in the God who will answer that. Pray, deliver us from evil, deliver me from doubt. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you today, God, and, and we take a moment to think about the various doubts that have crept into our lives, Father. And the truth is, we might, we might be dealing, God, throughout our lives with various doubts. And we confess those. Doubting you is, is a sin, a heinous sin, Father. Because you have, you have told us who you are and you've proven yourself. Forgive us for doubting you. Forgive us for the fickleness of our faith. So, Father, if there's any doubts right now, please convict us of them, Father. Convict us of, of where we've been guilty of doubting you in the past and how that's affected our lives. And Father, convict us of any doubts we might be struggling with right now about where our lives are headed or what you're doing in them or what you might do in the future. Who you are. Show us those doubts, God. And by your spirit, convict us and may we, may we cast them aside. Father, help us in our battle against doubt. Deliver us from it, Father. Deliver us by showing us the great cloud of witnesses around us that testify. I mean, Father, it's the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we, we have a cloud of witnesses, Father, to your faithfulness, a cloud surrounded by them, surrounded by witnesses to who you are, witnesses to your faithfulness. May we remember them. May we see them in our own lives. May we read about them. And Father, help us to throw away, throw away doubt when it comes even close, to cast it aside, to know that it is a, it is a weight, it is not something we can accept, it is not something we can just, just allow into our lives or just excuse. We can't be okay with it. We've got to cast it aside and run. And Father, help us to look to Christ. Help us, Father, to fix our eyes on Him because, Father, He is the source of our faith. He is, he is a well that never runs dry. He is living water for us for now, for eternity, Father. And, and Father, I pray that we would remember that that source never runs out and, and that he is not only just a source of our faith, he's a sustenance for it, Father. He's one that sustains our faith. So fix our eyes on him that we might trust you and never doubt. Please, Father, doubt is so dangerous. We know that. So help us to trust you. And Father, deliver us. Deliver us from doubt. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.